And once again, uh, it's great to be together, not just here, but together with our, uh, our tradition service over in the West Court. So welcome all as we look into God's Word. Uh, have you ever been in what you consider to be a no-win situation? If you're a parent, if you're a leader of any kind, some of you are smiling and looking at each other already. If you're if you have coworkers at work or clients or friends, if you relate to people at all, sometimes it seems like it's all about how do I make the best out of a no-win situation, right? We're working through some of the teachings of Jesus in the last half of, the, of Mark's gospel. Uh, we're calling them tough teachings, or as biblical scholars sometimes say, the hard sayings of Jesus. And we're looking at them both in light of how they are hard-hitting uh, this thing's got to be hitting too, though. My, uh, my slide thing doesn't seem to be hitting. There we go. Hard-hitting, but also life-giving. And when it comes to today's topic, it has no wind written all over it. Both for me, <laughs> but also for Jesus. What does Jesus say about divorce? Now, there's a no wind. Mark chapter 10, turn there. You've got to be looking at this one in your, um, in, in your text, so download a Bible app or open your Bible. As we read it, I would like you to ask yourself two questions. Number one, how does Jesus respond to this difficult question? Number two, what does Mark want me to hear in my situation? Okay, this isn't just about marriage and divorce, this is about a bigger picture. Mark chapter 10, let's read verses 1 to 12. Jesus then left that place, went into the region of Judea, and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied, they said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus replied, it was because of your hearts, because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife and they will, the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not Man, separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Wow. Did somebody say something about tough talk? <laughs> to understand the toughness of this talk, we first have to see what makes this a no-win situation for Jesus. So as Jesus left that place, Capernaum, as we know from the previous chapter, on the way down for his final trip to Jerusalem, and although he's been trying, as we saw last week, to avoid the crowds so he can teach his disciples, they still find him, and we're told, as was his custom, he taught them. What is he teaching in this section? He's teaching them what it means to follow him, to be a disciple in real life, some of the crowd were attracted to his teaching, as we learned earlier in the book. And some of the crowd 
The Pharisees are looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. And so, the Pharisees, we are told, way back in chapter 3, went out, began to plot with the Herodians, remember that, how they might kill Jesus. So right from the beginning of the book, these Pharisees, God's guardians, as they like to think of themselves, have a very specific role in Jesus' story. They're doing two things. Number one, they're looking for reasons why they need to get rid of Jesus. A lot of that involves testing him with tough questions to trap him publicly so that they can say, see, fake news. And they plot how they can pull it off so they won't get in trouble with the Romans or their fellow Jews. So it looks like they're actually pleasing God and could be seen by people to be guardians of God's law. And it's in this question that the Pharisees think they finally have the perfect trap. Is it lawful? For a man to divorce his wife. Is it permissible? That's the word. The word law isn't in there, but it's a word that's always used about law. Is it permissible, allowed in God's law, which is in their mind, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses? This is a yes or no question. And the answer is yes. But Jesus knows that the trap will come in the next question, and I think he knows what the trap is. So what is the trap? Well, we, this, this is a trap in one of two ways, possibly a little bit of both. Uh, among the Pharisees, there were actually two schools of thought regarding divorce, schools that were identified by two prominent rabbis, Shammai and Hillel. The two schools were divided on a passage that the um, Pharisees have quoted, Deuteronomy chapter 4, which says this, listen, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand and sends it out of her house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, Then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that's an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now in the Jewish context, divorce was allowed. The only questions were under what conditions. Now this law of Moses actually limited in three ways the ability to get divorced. Number one, there had to be a reason. Number two, the husband couldn't just walk. He had to get approval for that reason. And number three, there had to be a signed certificate, and that certificate included making sure there was a settlement that was fair. Over over time, two schools of thought emerged as to what was a good enough reason. And guess what? The two schools of thought were no different than schools of thought today. There was the liberal side, and there was the conservative side both claiming to base their answer on Scripture. (laughs) Hasn't changed, right? The school of Hillel was the conservative side. They saw indecency as a strong word. Indecency according to God's law, which obviously referred to marital unfaithfulness, adultery. That was the only condition they allowed. The school of Shammai was the more liberal school, and they said, well, let's think about that word indecency. That could have broad implications You know, anything that ticked him off. Burnt toast, you're toast. Just like that. 
In Jesus' day, at least certain regions among, and, and among the community of rabbis, it was beginning to swing to the more liberal view. That's the way culture was going. It's just more, well, it's just more practical. It's what the people are demanding. Sound familiar? Now, this issue is probably in the background. But, why would Pharisees, who are all working together to get rid of Jesus, why would they ask Jesus a question that puts Jesus on the hot seat, which is going to highlight their own divisions? You ever thought about that? You see, they know Jesus will give a more conservative answer. The question we need to ask is, why is it they need him to give that conservative answer? What, what do they need to get out of the answer that they know Jesus will give? What was the next question going to be? There has to be something else going on there, and there is. And the verse that we read earlier in Mark 3 about what the Pharisees were are doing to get rid of Jesus helps us to see what's going on here. It says that the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Why is that relevant? We're not exactly sure who Herodians are, but it obviously is take off on the name Herod. But it might be helpful to see where Jesus was when the Pharisees are trying to pin him down. Jesus is on his way back down to Jerusalem, and, and we're, we're told that he crossed the Jordan into Perea, as uh, I think it's the Gospel of Matthew tells us, which is the territory that is now ruled by a Jewish puppet king, Herod Antipas. A king whom the Jews had no respect for, but whom the Pharisees think they might be able to work with to get rid of Jesus. Why? Because, not too long ago, Herod Antipas divorced his wife in order to marry someone else, actually his brother's wife. But the plot gets thicker. In Mark chapter 6, Mark spends a a good deal of time recording the story of how John the Baptist got beheaded. Why was he beheaded and who did it? He did it because John had dared to publicly confront Herod for divorcing his wife so he could marry his brother's wife. And Herod begins to find a way, a reason to get rid of John. The Pharisees are setting Jesus up for exactly the same thing. They will get Herod to take care of getting rid of Jesus and they can still look innocent and good in people's eyes. So what does Jesus do? As always, it's brilliant and it's powerful. First, he turns the question back on them. Their question was, is it permitted for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answers their question with his own question. Uh, Let's not talk about what's permitted. What did Moses command you? What did he, the word is charge. What did he charge you? And how do they answer Well, Moses Moses permitted. He allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Can you see how they're avoiding Jesus' question? And Jesus says, this command, this law, 
was only given, this, there's only one prescriptive or there's only one charge in this law about divorce. The prescriptive part was how it was to happen. There had to be a reason, a signed certificate with a fair settlement. That was the charge Moses gave. And this charge was given as a protection for women. So at least they came out of it with something. At least it was done with some regulations. But Jesus said, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about why this command was necessary. It's necessary because of the hardness of your hearts. To women and to God. Your hearts, not their hearts. What Jesus is saying is that these Pharisees, these teachers, these guardians of the law operate from and live from a wrong understanding of the law of God. What did Moses command you? What did he charge you? It's a word, that word is a word that focuses on doing something in order to achieve something. It's the verb form, some of you who know a little bit about biblical languages and even a little bit of philosophy and apologetics, it's, it's a word that comes from the word teleos, which focuses on a purpose, the teleological argument in, in philosophy. What is the purpose of creation, the vision for it? You see, these people focused on what the law permitted, what it allowed. What are the boundaries? Jesus did not ask Moses aloud. Jesus said, what did Moses command? And then Jesus takes them back, not to the command about divorce. He takes them back to what Moses commanded in their law, that what they were supposed to focus on in the beginning of the law, books of Moses, the very beginning, the account of how God put this whole arrangement together, the command was, the, 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 the vision-oriented, purpose-driven command there's two quotes from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. You guys are focusing on what a man can get away with. God focused on what both men and women were created to be. And what was that? To be a reflection of the God who is more than one living in an uninterruptible oneness. Male and female together, created as God's image. And then he goes to Genesis 2 and just refers to what they knew about Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to, will actually cling to, hang on to as hard as you can to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And Jesus adds something to Genesis, explaining it. He says, so there are no longer two, but one. And here was the command that would ensure the fulfillment of the vision. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Did you see what Jesus does? They want to talk about the laws, the rules around divorce. Jesus talks about the real law, the vision for marriage they were commanded to work out. Jesus does not want to talk about divorce. He knows it happens. He assumes it violates the vision of God. Jesus wants us to think about marriage. His point is that if you're living in the vision, the rules for divorce would be irrelevant. And so today we're going to focus on what Jesus wanted to talk about, what he did talk about. Not whether the divorce is legitimate, not whether it's acceptable, not whether it's allowed and under what conditions. You only get in trouble when you go there. The question is, 
how can I do my part to divorce-proof my marriage? Whether I'm in a marriage now, whether I'm going to be in a marriage some other time, whether I'm considering marriage, or how can I do my part in general relationships? We're going to talk first to those who are in a marriage, and then, second, we're going to do a bit of a a value-added piece and talk to those who are not yet in a marriage, and I'm going to bring LaDonna up here, and we're going to do that together. So, number one, the first thing Jesus is suggesting in this context, and we're going to see that later, is that whatever situation you're in, you can leverage that situation, whether it's a good marriage, a bad marriage, or no marriage, leverage your situation to look at and live in the vision that God gives in creation. You know that old line, it's, it, it's hard to soar with the eagles when you're living with a bunch of turkeys? That's a trap we so often fall into in marriage, right? We begin to think of how bad we have it, how poorly we're treated, and we begin to allow ourselves to have thoughts of, you know what, is it legitimate to get out of this? And as soon as we have those thoughts, what happens is we begin to stack up the reasons, the evidence for why it might be okay and for how to do it in a way that's okay. You see, if you're looking for a way out, you can find it. You can. Jesus calls us to go back to the original vision. What was the original vision? A God who is totally satisfied in himself, totally fulfilled in the mutuality of Trinity, says... Let's make something in this creation in space and time that is so good. Let us make a creation that is our reflection. A reflection of us, a representation of us who will rule over creation for us and like us. And what does he do? The God who is three and yet one in complete and perfect oneness makes humanity as two and yet one male and female, who will complement each other, who will complete each other as a reflection of him. The first and the primary purpose of marriage was not to deal with Adam's aloneness. The first and the primary purpose of marriage was for two to become one, like God who is one, for two living with God as their head in a new oneness, a new trinity that was like the God who created it all. I've told you before that when, when LaDonna and I got married and, and were warned about how different we were, we started looking around at marriages of people who were totally different from each other. And, and we tried to figure out what, it, what, what those who stayed together had in common and what those who didn't stay together had in common. And it seemed to us, after I think it was about four years of, of just looking and, and talking, it seemed to us that the one thing that distinguished those who stayed together, no matter how different they were, was that they dreamed the same dream. They had a dream that they gave themselves to accomplishing together, sometimes with lots of sparks. And now for some of them, that dream had a lot to do with self-benefit. Like for some people, it was just the dream of having a lot of money. She was willing to stay with him as long as she had access to that money. But they shared a dream, right? Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, your job as self-proclaimed guardians of God's law, is to hold up before people the foundational law of God, the vision, the dream. And that dream is not about making me feel good, look good, or even being in a secure relationship with my partner. That's part of it. 
But that dream has to do with God. Marriage, the way God created it to be, is a a covenant. Not just between two people, but a covenant with God. To be like God. To be for God. The question is not whether my partner deserves me to keep my covenant. The question is, what does the God who gave himself to me, the God who loved me with an everlasting love, the God who entrusted me, entrusted to me the high calling of being a reflection of him, what does he deserve from me? A number of years ago, I was relating to a young woman who said she wanted to follow God, but who felt her marriage was not fulfilling, and she wanted out. She basically wanted my blessing to get out. Now that's a no-win. I talked her down two times, and on the third time, I bumped her up to a higher court. I said, would you talk to LaDonna? Maybe as a woman, she might understand your situation better. She met with LaDonna, who listened and listened, and on the second time they met, the, the woman said, it's over. And LaDonna said... Can I ask you to hold off for one week and just every day this week ask yourself one question. How far am I willing to go? How much am I willing to endure for Jesus, the one who died for me? One week later, the woman called and said, okay, for Jesus, I'm willing to hang in there. That's the vision. Doing my part to live as a reflection of God, a covenant with the God who has given himself to me. When things get tough and they do, leverage that by looking more closely again, by giving yourself to live in the vision of a covenant-keeping God who invites you to live in covenant with him as fully as he lived out his covenant with you who loved you and gave himself up for you. Are you living in the vision? Are you looking for a way out? Because... When you're looking at the vision, it's, it's a lot harder to see a way out. But there's one more thing in this passage, and to see that, we need to zoom out a bit. Where are we in this journey through Mark's gospel? What is Jesus' primary teaching in this last journey to Jerusalem? It, it's teaching what it means to follow him. He's teaching what it means to be a disciple. To be a disciple is to follow Jesus in real life situations, to reflect Jesus' vision and give myself to God's purpose in real life situations. You can't get any closer to a real life situation according to God's purpose than marriage. So can you see what that means? That means that everything Jesus has been saying to this point, everything directly relates to this subject of marriage. You see, what Jesus is pointing us toward is is that we need to be able to leverage our situation, especially when we find it to be a negative situation. We need to leverage it to help us grow as a disciple of Jesus, to grow closer to Jesus, to to, to love the more, love out, live out the more that Jesus is. So let's just very quickly review some of those statements we've seen the last few weeks. How might this statement apply to me in my marriage? How might this statement make a difference or have made a difference in my marriage? Chapter 8, if if anyone wants to come after me, he has to deny himself, take up his cross, which means die to himself in your marriage. Oh my goodness. 
You see, in Jesus' day and in certain cultures today, marriage, marriage was often seen in terms of socioeconomics. You married to better your place in society. Marriage was a merger of families. It was a way to achieve status. It was, it was life insurance for women at times. Jesus is calling them to a bigger picture. But in our day, we tend to see marriage more and, and sometimes only in terms of meeting my personal needs and my emotional needs. And we set ourselves up to expect more from another human being than any other human being can deliver. And Jesus calls us to die to ourselves and get our life in and from him and live out that self-denial in our relationships. How do hearts get hard? Hearts get hard when feelings rule. (laughs) Making it about my feelings is making it about me, right? Is there an opportunity God's giving me in any of my relationship to just die to myself, take up my cross? And what was the point of the chapter 9? If you want to be great, you've got to be the very last, the servant of all. What if we looked at marriage as an opportunity to serve like Jesus, give ourselves up to another? What if that's what God is calling you to do? What was the point of the last section of chapter 9? Got to listen to last week to get it all, but, but there's this conversation about salt and fire, which is, we talked last week about how we need to choose, we get to choose, actually, the way we respond in every situation, whether God's fire is going to be a judging fire or a purifying fire, which makes us ask the question that Gary Thomas asked in his book about marriage, What if the purpose of marriage was not to make me happy, but to make me holy? That's the passage that goes into our section for today. Making a commitment to follow Jesus did not hinder a marriage. It helps a marriage. I think that the question Jesus wants us to ask is, is my heart a hard heart or is it a heart that is soft to God, soft to others, especially a marriage a, a difficult marriage partner. I, w- I want to tell you what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that if you're divorced, there's no future for you. He's saying that you can use your situation to say, you know what? I had a difficult marriage, but I also did not grow like a servant, like I should. The issue isn't about fault. The issue is, how am I responding today to the love of Jesus? Now we're going to move into a a value-added piece to wrap up our teaching time this morning. Uh, LaDonna, um, and we're going to talk to us, those of us who are not yet married, and we're going to talk to some of us grandparents to help us make sure that we will help our grandchildren understand what it means to go into a marriage. I'm going to ask LaDonna to come up and uh, set us up for that. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's also for those of us who may be thinking about getting married again because the risk of us entering another failed marriage is actually higher than the first time. Um, I'm going to wrap, wrap this all up with a statement that I love. I quote to myself at least once a month. Um, the problem in relationships is that we fight but we fight to lose, not to win. Richard Halverson says, if you're going to fight, fight for the relationship, not against it. 
Fight for reconciliation, not alienation. Fight to preserve friendship, not destroy it. Fight to save your marriage, not to salve your ego. If you're going to fight, fight to win, not to lose. And then he goes on to say, lasting friendships are not negotiated, they're forged. That means heat and pressure. Authentic intimacy comes only through struggle. Relationships are sustained by commitment, not pleasant feelings. Treat a relationship as negotiable and it's easily lost. Consider it non-negotiable and a way is found to make it work. That's the general principle. Now, okay, first of all, thank you, LaDonna, for agreeing to work with a klutz like me. (laughs) We're really close to the stairs. (laughs) Okay. I'm in. So, what are, what are some of the things, LaDonna, that, uh, that resonate with you uh, in our marriage? Maybe some of the things we've talked about today. And, and What is it that's kept us together? Well, it's definitely not our backgrounds. <laughs> she grew up in the big city, Vancouver. <laughs> and he grew up in the bush, northern BC bush. That's all you need to know. <laughs> We're so different. You know, you know that ready, aim, fire thing? I'm sort, of a, I'm sort of a ready, fire, aim kind of oh. guy. <laughs> Hold it. You're not just ready, fire, aim. You're like fire, ready, aim. <laughs> you mean like yesterday when I uh, made my coffee and I pressed the button on the uh, coffee grinder and then there was nothing underneath there? I didn't even check. <laughs> yeah, we can start there. I'm more... <laughs> Of a um, ready, fire, aim, fire kind of person, wouldn't you say? Well, maybe. Ready, aim, ready, aim, aim, aim. <laughs> Don't need a trigger on her gun. <laughs> What's this thing for? <laughs> but in spite of our differences, I would say that what Mal talked about today, we're trying to live. And we both give ourselves to fighting to win. And I'll say publicly that sometimes we come to that commitment after, at least for my part, time of fighting to lose. But we do get there quicker than we used to even. (laughs) But how do you know? When you pick someone who's different than you, how do you know that they will actually compliment you? How do you know? that they will fight with you to win? How do you know that they'll live in a vision with you? It takes two. One of the, one of the things we've seen today is that biblical principles, as principles, apply to all situations. And, um, uh, and there's one that I think that is really central in helping us understand how to make sure we're picking the right one. And it comes from Philippians chapter 1. Paul says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best. You know, um, what do we think of when we think of love, LaDon? Well, when we think about love, we tend to think of two things. First of all, We think about the feeling, right? And to counter that, we're taught that love is a commitment 
It's how we act. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, th I think I said, I mean, in fact, I think I said that earlier today. <laughs> Was I wrong? No, you're not wrong. It's just incomplete. <laughs> That's okay. why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not what Paul says here. I pray that your love may grow in knowledge and depth of insight. In other words, true love thinks. True love thinks. And there's never a more important time to have a thinking love than when we're selecting a partner. A number of years ago, Mel brought home this book, How to Avoid Falling in Love with a Jerk. You know what she said to me? It's too late. <laughs> And then he said, but it's not too late to help someone else. I read the book, and I realized that it was a basic, common-sense approach. It was teaching that we had applied and we had taken. It was almost like a scientific analysis of how we had gone about discovering if we were best for each other. And as I read the book, I thought, this is Philippians 1. It's applying to a marriage partner. A thinking, discerning kind of love. And this book fleshes out a concept he calls the relationship attachment model. He breaks it down to five bonding areas in a relationship. There's to know, trust, rely, commit, and touch. And the significant part of this model is not just knowing these factors. It's that if you want to let your love grow in more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern, you need to, number one, follow this order. This is the order. Know, trust, rely, commit, and then touch. And number two, you should never let the meter get higher on the next bonding area than it is on the preceding one. He calls that the safe zone. And if we get out of the safe zone... Your mind and your heart are out of balance. They're not working together. So let's talk about knowing. Knowing your partner. We'll spend most of our time on this one. What do you need to know? Basically, we need to know if we can be compatible. And there are three factors in being compatible. Three factors in the knowing database. There's complementarity, comparability, and chemistry. So in our culture, which is the one we focus on most? It's chemistry, right? And what happens when we focus most on chemistry is we, we tend to put the others on the back burner, and it's in those areas, the most important ones, that we miss the flags. And when we put chemistry first, sometimes we have a wonderful friendship and completely miss the point that this person could be an amar <laughs> amazing marriage partner. We create this romantic ideal based on feelings, and then we eventually give up the ideal and marry anybody. Or the chemistry factor blinds us from seeing some pretty big flags. It's not that chemistry is not important. I remember talking with a, um, a very special woman who was honoring me with her fears. She was a little bit older, engaged, and doubting. And I listened to her her fears were very normal doubts. I couldn't see any real flags. And I knew the guy she was engaged to, and I didn't see any big flags there either. And finally, I just asked her, 
Um, a question. I was pretty confident that they had not moved the touch slider further than the rest. So I said to her, okay, so let me ask you. When you're with him, do you look forward to sleeping with him for the rest of your life? And her face got red and she said, well, yeah. And then I said, go for it. <laughs> so chemistry is important, but... But there's three problems with, with making chemistry the highest. Number one, chemistry is not a good judge of character. Number two, when we focus on chemistry, we tend to put filters on our eyes and we see what we want to see. And number three, chemistry is not constant over a relationship, even in the best of relationships. There's actually evidence as to what happens when you put chemistry first. Researchers at the University College of London found that feelings of love actually lead to suppression of the very place in your brain, the activity that controls critical thought. Ooh. That's the major practical reason why it's in your best interest to save sex for marriage. Hmm. So what about complementarity? Um, that's the big question. Will we truly complement each other? Let me just throw out a few test questions here. These are all going to be on the, uh, on the PowerPoint and the Internet uh, uh, tomorrow. So you can refer them to somebody tomorrow. Number one, do you find that you're becoming a better person being with your partner than you have been without him? And, and, and this is something you can ask other people about. This is something that some people warn you about. When you're with that person, you're not a good person. Number two, do your partner's strengths empower you or do they devour you? Huge issue. Number three, do you feel admired and appreciated for the ways that you are different from your partner? Number four, the final test is, is the outcome. Uh, do, do I find myself becoming more like my partner? And is that a good thing? Okay, those are the questions to ask in terms of complementarity. Next one, comparability. Being opposite is fine, but you have to know whether your partner and you are alike and whether your differences will truly complement each other. Here are some areas you might explore. Compare your personalities. Will you be able to handle some of the key differences? Are you extroverted? Is he introverted? Is he rigid? Are you flexible? So, a key is to figure out whether their traits are reactions to something. Because if they are, that's emotionally unhealthy. What are their thinking styles? Do I really want to spend the rest of my time trying to think like my partner thinks or dealing with how they think? What about your partner's sense of humor? You have to be able to laugh together. But do you laugh at the right kinds of things? Or are they cynical, negative things? The biggest things we need to compare and really think through are our values. Beliefs about marriage, about parenting, about our roles, our faith, money, lifestyles, and your vision for life and marriage, which is what Jesus wanted to talk about in Mark 10. So in order to grow in knowledge and discernment, We've got to put limits on the extent of our emotional attachment and investment. The author talks about a three-month rule. 
It's only at the three-month mark of being together regularly that we can even begin to see the first sign of potential flags because we tend to put our best foot forward until we feel a bit more secure in our relationship. And it's only after at least three months that we begin to see patterns in things like, how do they treat other people? Because the way they treat other people is the way they'll eventually treat me. Do they follow through on their promises? Do they tell the truth or are they telling little lies? Are they rude, judgmental, negative, critical? Do they listen to you actually or do they just talk to you? How do they treat their parents? Huge one. What are their mood patterns? It's, it's fine if they make you think that you are the only one that makes them happy. But that's a flag. Second in the ram is trust. Relationships do not grow without trust, but you should not extend trust beyond the level that you truly know. Because it's only through knowledge that you know your partner is trustworthy. And that takes time. Part of trustworthiness is whether they are willing to acknowledge, to own their own mistakes, to ask forgiveness for their mistakes. Do they demonstrate that they're changing over time? And then, number three, am I learning to rely on my partner? Um, That's a huge one. In healthy ways, not overly dependent ways. And and am I relying based on my level of trust, on their level of trustworthiness? Commitment. Are they demonstrating total commitment to me and to me alone, even when we're apart, to making my needs um, and their needs first? Whose first needs? Whose needs are first? Hmm. And finally, touch. Touch. The key question, is our sexual life a demonstration of these things, not simply based on urges or chemistry? Touch should never go higher than any of the other scales. And I have no idea where the author of this book comes from regarding God's rules, but what he points out is that there is a solid reason for waiting until formal commitment to have sex, besides just following an outdated rule. You can't separate your body from the rest of you. What your body does, you do. Your heart and mind follow your body, yeah. In the end, the number one question is, as we came back to Jesus, is this someone, is this someone who I can follow God together with? Do they want to become more and more like God or they do just want me or to become like God? Those are the questions. A love that grows in knowledge and discernment. So what if I failed? What if I failed? What we need to do, for those of you in Renew, you've already celebrated communion, but we need to bring our place, our, our, our failure, to the place where, as we saw at Easter, failure is undone. Where failure has failed for you. Earlier in Mark, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, people will be forgiven for all sins, even all the blasphemies they utter. And forgiveness includes freedom. Bring it to the place where the one who has committed himself totally to you, made his covenant to you, 
with his blood to forgive and cleanse and make you whole and give yourself to living from this day forward in whatever challenging situation you find yourself with a heart that's soft to God and to people, especially difficult people. From this point on, follow faithfully. Choose wisely in light of the vision and love fully like the God who loved you with all you had. That is Jesus' vision. So those who are serving in this ceremony, come forward and we'll share this together. It's a great day to share this ceremony because today we talk about covenant. And we can only live out truly our covenant to each other as we live in and live out with others 